Hey guys, we have another shout out for another $10 patron. So today's shout out is for Dr. Angela Mirzadeh. I really hope I'm saying your last name correctly, but thank you so much for contributing to our podcast. If you want to be like Dr. Mirzadeh and get a shout out from the show, go ahead and go to our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Coffee, and give us a $10 donation or above. Faye, in this era of rapidly changing practice with respect to COVID, I am so happy that I have a continued subscription to the OBG project. Definitely. I have really appreciated my OBG First subscription as well because I get a lot of my information actually from my phone. And so when they email me and I'm able to rapidly click on those articles and read them before they go away, that really allows me to continue to stay up to date on everything that's going on. And it's even beyond just COVID, right? They send us summaries of the latest and greatest and randomized trials for obstetrics, gynecology, and primary care, as well as other interesting articles that, hey, that just may be relevant to my practice or just something fun to know. So if you're a fourth-year resident like Nick and I, you can get one year of subscription to OBG First absolutely free. And we have actually gone beyond our first year, and I've continued to subscribe to uh, the OBG Project and OBG First just because I think that it is so helpful for my current practice and for my learning. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over, Over Coffee. Coffee. All right, so today we are going to get into a sort of nitty gritty, tough to learn, tough to describe topic, but we hope that we got there for you on thyroid disease and pregnancy. Faye, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling kind of nervous for this one. Me too. This is not a topic that I knew well coming into this. We'll take a stab at it. What are our learning objectives for today? So today we are going to discuss the physiology of the thyroid gland and thyroid hormones in pregnancy, and we're going to review the diagnosis and manifestations of thyroid conditions in pregnancy. We're also going to learn the appropriate empiric treatments for thyroid disease in pregnancy, and finally discuss special and rarer thyroid conditions in pregnancy. And for our visual learners, if you want to follow along with some reading, you can also read Practice Bulletin 148, Thyroid Disease in Pregnancy. Nick, talk to us about thyroid disease in general. Why is this something that we care about? Yeah, so obviously, just based on the way that we're talking about this to start, thyroid disease is one of these things that's important, but also kind of difficult to wrap your head around. And as we've talked in previous episodes about GYN problems, actually, the thyroid is involved with a lot of different stuff. It's like a regulator on the endocrine system. It's been implicated with infertility and implicated in abnormal bleeding, implicated in anovulation. Um, the thyroid's always part of our workup, it seems like. And the thyroid's importance extends into pregnancy too. Uncontrolled hyperhypothyroidism are associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes for both mom and fetus. However, there is a different realm of subclinical entities of thyroid disease that are less clear in the benefit of screening for them and their treatment. So it's also important to have a handle on when or if you should intervene for thyroid disease. Faye, let's do our sort of medical school flashback um, or maybe beginning of residency flashback and talk a little bit about thyroid physiology through the beginning of pregnancy. Yeah, so the thyroid gland is pretty confusing in pregnancy because it doesn't necessarily follow all the rules that it does outside of pregnancy and its function can fluctuate throughout your pregnancy in part due to HCG. So 
thyroid-stimulating hormone TSH and HCG share the same alpha subunit as some of the other hormones of the anterior pituitary. So therefore, HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin, has some mild thyrotropic effects because of that similar alpha subunit. So therefore, in the first trimester, TSH may actually be lower as a reflection of this. And so free T4 may also be slightly elevated in the first trimester. However, the TSH values should revert back to normal after approximately 12 weeks. And it is important to remember that TSH shouldn't be routinely measured in women with hyperemesis gravidarum unless other symptoms of hyperthyroidism are present because of this reason. Treatment of transient hyperthyroidism associated with hyperemesis gravidarum has not been shown to be beneficial. So let's talk a little bit more about exactly why we need a functioning thyroid gland and thyroid hormones in pregnancy. So first of all, maternal T4 is transmitted transplacentally throughout the pregnancy, and it is important for normal fetal brain development. And this is especially important before fetal thyroid gland functions um, at approximately 12 weeks. So preconception screening and treatment for symptomatic thyroid disease is very important because sometimes we don't often see these women until they're 10, 12 weeks pregnant, and by that, it may be too late. Nick, talk to me a little bit more about iodine intake uh, in pregnancy. Yeah, so again, this is kind of more like boards trivia or bar trivia, um, that non-pregnant iodine consumption is recommended as about 150 micrograms daily. Now, on an American diet, you're usually going to get that much um, just out of iodized salt, basically, that gets either added into your food or used in food preparation. Um, the requirement does increase in pregnancy, though. The recommendation is 220 micrograms during pregnancy and actually all the way increases to 290 micrograms during lactation. Iodine, though, is not always included in prenatal vitamins. So if you're working with patients with particular food insecurities or you're working in low-resource settings, it's important to recognize dietary iodine deficiency as an important component of potential hypothyroidism. Nick, I don't know what bars you're going to, but I have never been asked that question in bar trivia. I think it goes back to medical school, Faye. We had a bar that was right down the street from us. I'm sorry. Asked a lot of medical-related trivia. So um, sorry to those of you out there who think I'm a total nerd. Anyways, we'll move on. So thyroid testing, this is really kind of the meat of things. And Faye, I don't know about you. I never know like what tests exactly to get when it comes to thyroid testing. Yeah, I kind of order the TSH reflex and then hope my lab knows what to do afterwards. And actually, the practice bulletin nicely simmers it down, and there's a lot of agreement on thyroid testing, to my surprise. ACOG, the Endocrine Society, and the Association of Clinical Endocrinologists recommend against universal screening for thyroid disease in pregnancy, and we'll get into the reasons for that why shortly. Um, but basically, they recommend only screening for women who are at increased risk of overt thyroid disease or with symptoms of overt thyroid disease, whether that's hypo or hyperthyroidism. In terms of the tests themselves, the first tests that are essential to thyroid testing are, as you said, Faye, the TSH and typically a reflex free T4 thyroxine. That's the baseline screening test. TSH is most important of these two. Um, and in pregnancy, the values fluctuate. For the first trimester, the baseline normal range is 0.1 to 2.5 million international units per liter. Second trimester, 0.2 to 3 and third trimester, 0.3 to 3. The free thyroxine or T4 result contextualizes that TSH result, and for this reason, it's often sent as a reflex if the TSH is abnormal. For some of those other thyroid tests that you sometimes think about or hear about, 
free T3 or triiodothyronine is generally not a useful laboratory to obtain. Sometimes you can have an abnormal high T3 causing hyperthyroidism, but that's very uncommon. And so you'd obtain that only if you're suspicious for hyperthyroidism based on symptoms with a low TSH and an otherwise normal T4. Antithyroid antibodies are the other category of should I or why would you get this test? Um, but the bottom line answer is that they rarely lead to changes in management, so there's no evidence to actually routinely test for those antithyroid antibodies. Things I didn't know. Yeah. Faye, let's start talking now about the various thyroid conditions we might encounter in pregnancy. Um, and I think these break down nicely into what we typically think about, right? Hypo versus hyper. Yeah, so let's start with hyperthyroidism. So I'm going to break this down into overt hyperthyroidism, so obvious hyperthyroidism with symptoms, and subclinical hyperthyroidism, so just lab values, but the patient may not have symptoms just yet. So overt hyperthyroidism occurs in only about 0.2% of pregnancies um, with Graves' disease or antithyroid antibody stimulation accounting for 95% of these cases. The way that you diagnose this is with laboratory values um, as well as symptoms. So the patient will have low TSH, often an undetectable TSH, very high free T4, and symptoms like tremors, tachycardia, weight loss, heat intolerance, insomnia, goiters, palpitations, and hypertension um, or activating symptoms. So the reason we care about this is because it causes a lot of morbidity uh, for both the mom and the fetus or neonate. So in mom, it can lead to hypertension, preeclampsia, and even heart failure. And for the fetus or the neonate, it can lead to premature delivery because it is going to be medically indicated. It can cause growth restriction or low birth weight, stillbirth, high drops, neonatal hypothyroidism, or hyperthyroidism because the maternal antithyroid antibodies can cross the placenta and this can stimulate or inhibit the fetal thyroid. The risk is not necessarily mitigated in neonates of mothers who have had treatment for Graves with surgery or even radioactive iodine treatment because the antibodies can still persist and still cross the placenta. Thiomide treatments helps to suppress these antibody productions in medically treated patients. So that's where you would think about, you know, we'll talk about treatment in a little bit, but that's where you would think about giving these patients PTU or methimazole. In terms of subclinical hyperthyroidism, this affects 1.7% of pregnancies. And this is laboratory values showing a low TSH, but normal free T4. And the way that I think about this is that the body is able to somewhat self-regulate. It notices that there's an elevated uh, thyroid hormone kind of floating around the body. And so the brain knows to decrease the TSH um, so as not to continue to stimulate that thyroid. This has not been associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes because uh, and because antithyroid medications can cross the placenta and cause adverse fetal effects, treatment is not recommended in this case. All right, Nick, so that's hyperthyroidism. Talk to me a little bit about hypothyroidism. So similarly to what you did, Faye, we'll break this down into overt hypothyroidism and subclinical hypothyroidism. Overt hypothyroidism is present in about 0.2 to 1% of pregnancies, and it's kind of mirroring hyperthyroidism. This is going to be diagnosed on the combination of abnormal lab values, which is a high TSH with a low T4, as well as the presence of symptoms. And these symptoms are Again, sort of the opposite of hyperthyroidism. They're the slowing symptoms. So things you think about include fatigue, constipation, cold intolerance, weight gain, dry skin, hair loss. Um, and then on exam, 
prolonged relaxation phase of the deep tendon reflexes, as well as the presence of edema. Now, the real challenge with this diagnosis in pregnancy is that these symptoms sound a lot like early pregnancy, right? I mean, fatigue, constipation, yeah. weight gain. Um, so again, you have to have a high suspicion for that if that's present or persistent in pregnancy. Interestingly, goiters are actually more likely um, and more common in women who have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is the most common cause of hypothyroidism in pregnancy. Hashimoto's, again, is glandular destruction caused by thyroid autoantibodies. The risks of untreated hypothyroidism in pregnancy um, are both maternal and fetal. So on the maternal side, the highest risk really is with preeclampsia, but there are a number of fetal risks to remember, including the possibility of spontaneous abortion or pregnancy loss, preterm birth, placental abruption, and then impaired neuropsychological development in offspring. Due to low active thyroid hormone, the impaired neuropsychological development is really due to low active thyroid hormone presence, though. It's really uncommon for maternal thyroid inhibitory antibodies to cross the placenta and cause fetal hypothyroidism. Again, this is in contrast to hyperthyroidism, where those antibodies do cross the placenta and put the fetus at risk for hyper or hypothyroidism after birth. The presence of fetal hypothyroidism in women who have Hashimoto's is only 1 in 180,000, so again, extremely uncommon. Moving on to subclinical hypothyroidism, this is present in about 2 to 5% of pregnancies and again is diagnosed by a high TSH but a normal free T4. Women in this category are generally otherwise healthy and do not have symptoms of hypothyroidism. The bottom line is that subclinical hypothyroidism is not associated with adverse pregnancy or neonatal outcomes. Um, there were a number of observational trials in the late 90s that suggested that subclinical hypothyroidism might be a new frontier in prenatal outcomes and prenatal care. Um, and this was studied in a randomized controlled trial in 2012 called the Controlled Antenatal Thyroid screening study or the CATS study. Thought you'd like that, Faye. <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, but the CATS study basically randomized women to treatment or non-treatment of subclinical hypothyroidism and followed up their children initially up to age three. And then they had additional follow-up in 2018 in a separate publication that actually followed the kids out to age nine and a half. So really, really good follow-up here. Um, they had antenatal screening of thyroid function at a mean gestational age of 12 weeks and three days, which is pretty impressive, again, in terms of early screening. And they found no difference in neurocognitive development of these women's offspring at both age three and age nine and a half. And secondary analyses of the CATS trial have found no definitive association of subclinical hypothyroidism with preterm birth, placental abruption, NICU admissions, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, and a number of other outcomes. So again, bottom line, based on randomized trial evidence is that subclinical hypothyroidism is not an entity to go chasing during pregnancy. Thus, the recommendation, again, by ACOG, the Endocrine Society, and the Association of Clinical Endocrinologists is to recommend against universal screening for thyroid disease for these reasons. Um, so we only, again, are screening women who are at increased risk of overt thyroid disease or with symptoms of overt thyroid disease. Okay, so Faye, I think we've covered the epidemiology and the presentation and all of that now. Let's talk about treatment. All right. So again, for treating thyroid conditions, we're going to break this down to hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism. So for hyperthyroidism, really the mainstay of therapy is thiamide medications. So that's either propylthiouracil, PTU, or methimazole. 
we're going to talk about these medications uh, separately. PTU inhibits thyroperoxidase, which is an essential enzyme in the creation of free T4, and it also partially inhibits conversion of T4 to D3. It's preferentially used in the first trimester because it less readily crosses the placenta than methimazole. The major side effect is that it can cause hepatotoxicity, and this affects really only 0.1 to 0.2% of women on PTU, but because this is such a major side effect, um, the recommendation is to switch to methimazole in the second trimester so that you're not putting these women on PTU for longer than necessary. And there's no indication for routine LFT checks. Now, methimazole is also uh, a medication that inhibits thyroperoxidase, and it's preferentially used in second trimester due to the risk of hepatotoxicity of PTU. It is avoided in first trimester mainly because of its rare risk of embryopathy, which is characterized by esophageal or coanal atresia, as well as aplasia cutis, which I think we learned as a complication in medical school and then immediately forgot about it. So aplasia cutis is the congenital absence of skin, usually on the scalp. Just to kind of highlight that again, what you're going to do is start patients off if they have hyperthyroidism with PTU in the first trimester and then switch them over to methimazole for them to complete their pregnancy in second and third trimester. A rare but important side effect of both drugs is leukopenia, and this can occur up to 10% of pregnant women on these medications, and this does not actually require therapy cessation. However, this can very rarely lead to agranulocytosis in less than 1% of women, and this does mean that you need to stop the offending agent. So if women develop flu-like symptoms, they should discontinue these medications immediately and then obtain a CBC to assess your white blood cell count before you can figure out whether or not to continue with uh, with these medications. Um, and in terms of dosing, the initial dosing for both drugs is empiric. So it's 50 to 150 milligrams three times a day for PTU or 10 to 40 milligrams total daily, given in two to three doses for methimazole. The goal overall is to use the lowest dose possible to maintain free T4 in the high normal range, regardless of the TSH level. And now this is kind of the time where I get confused about what to order in terms of how to monitor these patients. And so for people with hyperthyroidism that are on treatment, you should measure their free T4 concentrations every two to four weeks after initiating the therapy. And you don't really need to look at their TSH levels anymore. And depending on their free T4 levels, you can adjust their thiamide dose accordingly. All right, so that was a lot about hyperthyroidism. Um, I am much more comfortable treating hypothyroidism. So talk to me a little bit about that, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. So for hypothyroidism, levothyroxine or brand name Synthroid is the mainstay for thyroid replacement therapy. Um, the dosing, if you're starting somebody out, should be one to two micrograms per kilogram daily, or that comes out to about 100 micrograms a day. Monitoring of therapy in contrast to hyperthyroidism, again, hyperthyroidism, we said we're going to watch the T4, but with hypothyroidism, we're going to watch TSH instead. And TSH should be measured every four to six weeks. You can adjust your dose by 25 to 50 microgram increments until the TSH normalizes. In women who are coming into pregnancy already on levothyroxine, you can anticipatorily adjust their dose 25% up, and that may reduce the risk of significant hypothyroidism in early pregnancy in high-risk women. Particularly, you want to think about doing this for women who have had thyroidectomy or radioiodine ablation who are going to have basically no thyroid reserve. All right, so let's talk now about some rarer things. Um, and I think probably the one that gets people most up in arms or excited or nervous is thinking about thyroid storm or thyrotoxic heart failure. 
So thyroid storm is pretty rare overall. Um, this occurs in only 1% to 2% of pregnant patients who have hyperthyroidism. The cardinal symptoms of thyroid storm include fever, tachycardia, arrhythmias, um, and CNS dysfunction. Thyroid storm often develops abruptly and leads quickly to multi-organ failure, so it's important to recognize it and begin treatment, which we'll talk about momentarily. Just for a quick aside, thyrotoxic heart failure actually is much more common and has been identified in up to 8% of women with uncontrolled hyperthyroidism. This heart failure is actually due to just to the excess of free T4 and its effects on heart muscle itself. This decompensation is usually precipitated by other disease onset, such as preeclampsia or sepsis or anemia, and fortunately, this type of heart failure is often reversible with treatment. Now, the treatment of these conditions is actually very similar, so that's why we kind of lumped them together to talk about them. You should definitely evaluate the TSH and T4 at the beginning. Again, that should be part of your workup, but if these are your primary suspicions, you shouldn't withhold treatment. Again, these conditions can actually move very, very quickly um, and cause significant morbidity and mortality. The ACOG algorithm and the practice bulletin is really excellent in terms of walking you through a step-by-step -step of how to do this, and we're basically just going to read it out loud to you to kind of talk about it. So the first tenant of the ACOG therapy is to start inhibiting the release of additional thyroid hormone, T3 and T4. So we'll do that with propylthiouracil, PTU. You should load 1,000 milligrams then do 200 milligrams orally every six hours after that. You'll want to put some iodide back one to starting one to two hours after PTU administration using either sodium iodide, potassium iodide, Lugol solution, or lithium carbonate if the patient has an iodide anaphylaxis history. And the doses are listed again in the bulletin or we'll have them on our website too. After you initially inhibit the thyroid hormone release, you're going to block further peripheral conversion of T4 to T3, and you're going to accomplish this using steroids. Um, you can use dexamethasone 2 milligrams IV every 6 hours for 4 doses, or hydrocortisone 100 milligrams IV every 8 hours for 3 doses, so basically a stress dose. And then finally, in terms of the treatment of thyrotoxic heart failure or thyroid storm, you may be considering using a beta-blocking drug, something like propranolol or labetalol or esmolol. If you're going to use a beta-blocking drug, though, to help control tachycardia, it's important to recognize that it may exacerbate heart failure. So these patients really should be thought about being treated in ICU for that reason. Um, and then finally, the last component of this treatment are supportive measures such as temperature control, etc. All right, Faye, we got through that part of the excitement, but let's talk about some other conditions that are rarer for thyroid disease. Yeah, so let's start off with uh, postpartum thyroiditis. So postpartum thyroiditis is thyroid dysfunction that occurs within 12 months of delivery that can manifest as hyper, hypothyroidism, or even both. This is thought to be due to transient autoimmune thyroiditis and is present in 5 to 10% of women in this time period. And often we don't actually see these patients in our clinic because a lot of the times the patients may self-diagnose this as the stresses of new motherhood. And they may even, even if they were to present with this, be told that that's the reason that they are feeling the way that they do. Most of the time, this will develop in two phases. First is the hyperthyroid state that is characterized by simultaneous thyroid gland destruction, which lasts maybe a few months at the longest. These patients can sometimes get a small painless goiter, um, and if diagnosed during this phase, thiamides are generally ineffective, but beta blockers can actually help with a lot of the symptoms. 
after this initial phase, then the patient will develop hypothyroidism. And this is somewhere between four to eight months postpartum. And this is, again, due to that destruction of the thyroid gland. So they may need thyroid replacement for about six to 12 months afterwards. Most women, however, will have symptoms that resolve spontaneously, but up to a third of women will continue to develop uh, permanent hypothyroidism. And then the last thing I think we should touch on in this episode is thyroid nodules that are discovered in pregnancy. So about one to 2% of reproductive age women are going to have thyroid nodules that are found clinically. If the patient is pregnant, then make sure that you're getting a thorough history and physical, you're ordering a TSH, and then finally an ultrasound of the neck. Ultrasounds can reliably detect nodules that are greater than 0.5 centimeters. And if it is suspicious for malignancy, the next step is to do a fine needle aspiration. Radio iodine scanning is actually not recommended in pregnancy because there is a theoretical risk of fetal irradiation. If cancer is detected, then of course a multidisciplinary discussion should be had regarding treatment and, and timing. But many times surgery is delayed until after delivery because there is a concern for potential removal of the parathyroid glands during pregnancy. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our thyroid disease and pregnancy episode. Let's go ahead and summarize. Okay. So again, we talked about the importance of thyroid function and thyroid disease to start knowing that, that this is related to a number of potential pathophysiologies in pregnancy. Again, TSH values at the beginning of pregnancy may be actually low and T4 values may be high due to the presence of HCG. Maternal T4 is transmitted transplacentally throughout pregnancy is important for brain development. Thus, preconception screening and treatment for symptomatic thyroid disease is ideal. We talked a bit about thyroid testing after that, noting that TSH and free T4 are your recommended baseline screening tests. T3 and antithyroid antibodies are generally not useful. We then discussed various thyroid conditions in pregnancy, and we broke this down into hyperthyroidism versus hypothyroidism. So first of all, in overt hyperthyroidism, this is when you have laboratories showing low TSH, high free T4, and hyperthyroid symptoms, which uh, include things like tremors, tachycardia, weight loss, etc. The reason that we care about this is because it can cause both maternal and fetal morbidity, including preeclampsia, heart failure, hypertension, premature delivery, and can cause uh, low birth weight, stillbirth, high drops, and potentially even lead to things like neonatal hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism. Some clinical hyperthyroidism is diagnosed with similar lab values of low TSH. However, they will have a normal free T4, and usually they will not have symptoms. Also, subclinical hyperthyroidism has not been associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes and therefore should not be treated. We then talked about hypothyroidism, which is overt in 0.2 to 1% of pregnancy and is diagnosed on the basis of a high TSH with a low T4, as well as the presence of those slowing symptoms, fatigue, constipation, cold intolerance. The trick, though, is that many of these symptoms sound a lot like early pregnancy, um, so you have to have a high suspicion for it. Um, the most common reason to have hypothyroidism in pregnancy is Hashimoto's disease, which is destruction of the thyroid by autoantibodies. Risks of overt hypothyroidism in pregnancy for mom are generally just related to preeclampsia, but fetal risks include pregnancy loss, preterm birth, abruption, um, and impaired neuropsychological development in those babies due to the low active thyroid hormone. 
Subclinical hypothyroidism, on the other hand, is more common in about 2 to 5% of pregnancies and, again, is just based on laboratory values, high TSH but normal T4 in an otherwise asymptomatic woman. Randomized control trials, such as the CAT study, have found no benefit to treating subclinical hypothyroidism, and thus the recommendation by ACOG and the Endocrine Society and the Association of Clinical Endocrinologists recommend against universal screening for thyroid disease, only screening for overt thyroid symptoms. In terms of treating thyroid conditions, we are only treating overt thyroid conditions in pregnancy. So in terms of hyperthyroidism, that means using thiamine medications, including PTU and methimazole. PTU, which inhibits thyroperoxidase, should be used in the first trimester because methimazole has a rare risk of embryopathy, which can cause esophageal or coanal atresia, as well as aplasia cutis. However, because PTU has a major side effect of hepatotoxicity and we want to limit the exposure of women to this medication, when they get to their second trimester, they should be switched over to methimazole. Both of these medications can cause leukopenia and very, very rarely can cause agranulocytosis, which would be a reason to stop these medications. The goal overall of using thiamide medications is to maintain free T4 in the high normal range, and you should start measuring free T4 concentrations every two to four weeks after starting therapy, not TSH levels. For hypothyroidism, levothyroxine is the mainstay for thyroid replacement therapy. Starting dose is approximately 100 micrograms daily. And rather than T4 measurements like you measure with hyperthyroidism, you're going to measure TSH levels every four to six weeks after initiating therapy, adjusting dose by 25 to 50 microgram increments until the TSH normalizes. Talking about some rarer things are things like thyroid storm and thyrotoxic heart failure. So thyroid storm only occurs in 1-2% to of pregnant patients with hyperthyroidism and can lead to things like fever, tachycardia, arrhythmias, and even CNS dysfunction. Um, because it can, it can uh, develop abruptly and lead to multi-organ failure, um, it needs rapid treatment. And so even though you should evaluate TSH and T4, if you suspect thyroid storm or thyrotoxic heart failure, you should not wait for these results to come back before you treat. Treatment includes inhibiting thyroid release of T3 and T4 with certain medications, blocking peripheral conversion of T4 to T3 with steroids, and also potentially beta-blocking medications to control tachycardia, though this can also uh, uh, it can also worsen heart failure. Um, and finally, you want to give your patients support measures such as temperature control. The final conditions that we talked about were postpartum thyroiditis, which is thyroid dysfunction within 12 months of delivery that can manifest as either hyper or hypothyroidism or a combination of the two. This often develops in two phases. First, hyperthyroidism, that is simultaneously causing destruction of the thyroid glands that can last a few months, then hypothyroid symptoms that begin somewhere between four and eight months postpartum that require thyroid replacement for six to 12 months. Most women have these symptoms resolved spontaneously, but up to a third of women will have permanent hypothyroidism after postpartum thyroiditis. Thyroid nodules can also be found in pregnancy, affecting 1-2% to of reproductive age women, and if they're found, you should perform a history and physical, a TSH, and an ultrasound of the neck. If the ultrasound is suspicious for malignancy, you need to do a fine needle aspiration, and if cancer is detected, a multidisciplinary discussion should be had regarding treatment timing. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. 
So guys, if you like the episode today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at Kriogs Over Cough One, on Facebook and Instagram at Kriogs Over Coffee. And if you want to give us some support, go ahead and go on to our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Over Coffee, and we'll give you a shout out or some swag. You can find show notes for this episode and all of our episodes on our website, www.kriogsovercoffee.com. And if you want to correct us on some of our previous episodes or give us some ideas for new episodes, go ahead and email us, kriogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs>